This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWIA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and with me is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi again, Alan. Hi, Darren. On today's episode, we'll start with the Hong Kong protests, turn next uh, to our takeaways from the recent Shangri-La dialogue and finish in the shadow of war between the United States and Iran. So let's get started. We begin with some background to the Hong Kong protests. After more than a century of British rule, control of Hong Kong was of course handed over to the People's Republic of China in 1997. Under the One Country, Two Systems framework, Hong Kong's political, judicial and economic systems are supposed to remain independent of China until 2047. Hong Kong's leadership is not, however, popularly elected, but approved by Beijing, including current Chief Executive Carrie Lam. Half of the Legislative Council is elected, but overall, Lam enjoys a solid majority of support. The protests concern a draft ordinance that had been making its way through the lawmaking process and would allow the Hong Kong government to extradite suspects to mainland China, as well as Taiwan and Macau. The draft legislation was in part a response to a controversial case last year in which a Hong Kong citizen had admitted killing his pregnant girlfriend in Taiwan, but after he returned to Hong Kong, the authorities had no ability to extradite him to Taiwan to face trial. The proposal triggered various concerns. The business community worried it might be applied in the context of commercial disputes and therefore affect the city's reputation as a global economic hub. Lawyers and others worried about its use to extradite dissidents or political opponents of the Chinese Communist Party. And Hong Kong citizens more broadly worried about the city's increasing loss of independence to China. Many have wondered whether the Chinese government was behind the move, though this has been publicly denied by Lam. A protest against the proposal in late April was estimated at over 100,000 people. Lawyers had their own marches subsequently and major legal groups called for a reconsideration of the laws and some changes were made. But it was the commemoration of the 30th anniversary of the June 4th Tiananmen Square massacre which seemed to spark a significant shift in how many Hong Kong citizens viewed their relationship with the mainland. Attendance at a vigil on Tuesday the 4th of June swelled to 180,000, the largest in recent years. Then, the following weekend, a massive march occurred of an estimated 1 million or more, specifically protesting the extradition law. After Carrie Lam vowed to push through with a fast track of the law, the protests became violent during the week as protesters attempted to stop legislators from discussing the bill and armed police were deployed to clear the roads around Parliament using tear gas, rubber bullets and baton charges. The following weekend, this is June 15, the government finally relented, with Lamb announcing the indefinite delay of the vote 
and taking an unusually apologetic tone in her comments. The protests only got bigger with estimations of a record-breaking 2 million people marching on the Sunday. The video footage was quite remarkable that I saw. Now, listeners may recall the Occupy Central umbrella movement in 2014, in which protests and a lengthy sit-in sought electoral reforms to improve Hong Kong's democracy. So we can sort of view the protests in that context of recent protest activity. So, Alan, let me start with a historical question. Can you describe Hong Kong's trajectory through the lens of Australian foreign policy? And do you have any personal reflections on the lead-up to or during the handover in 1997? Uh, well, I, I wasn't working for the government in the late 1990s, so I wasn't personally involved in all, all of that. Hong Kong had been our window into China uh, for many years. It was uh, ceded to China after the first opium war in 1842. So it's emblematic, really, of the, the first great impact of European imperialism on the uh, Qing dynasty and the start of an unhappy uh, period for China. Mm. Kowloon was added later and the new territories on the mainland were leased. And that was, you know, what led to the need for a, a transition of power because the leases, were, the leases were coming to an end and uh, Hong Kong and Kowloon alone weren't viable without the additional territory where a lot of the, the water uh, comes from. So Hong Kong became a vibrant trading and then manufacturing hub. Uh, it was the British Empire in East Asia. Australia had a, uh, a consulate uh, general in Hong Kong uh, for, a, for a long time, both uh, looking after our commercial interests there and also uh, particularly during the sort of Maoist period, it was the uh, only, only chance the China watchers uh, really got to try and talk about what was going on in the mainland. Can I keep the focus on the past for a moment and inquire about Hong Kong's trajectory since 1997 and how you view it? Had I asked you, Alan, you know, around six months ago, say, which would have been a time about four years after the Occupy Central movement, would you have assessed Hong Kong's status as being fundamentally stable then? Well, I think I would have said that it was stable within a trajectory that was leading to slow integration with the mainland. I mean, you, you can see the signs in, in Hong Kong. It's a much more Chinese city every time I go back there. And in part, that's that's deliberate. Beijing certainly wants to underline the Chineseness of the place mm. at the expense of the uh, exceptionalism. So I think that the end result is what we know. It, you know, eventually Hong Kong will become just a, a normal city in mainland China. That's great context for my next set of questions, which which, of course, relate to the protests themselves. Um, and there are three connected questions. The first, Alan, is, you know, in your assessment, were the protesters' concerns legitimate? The second, then, are you surprised by the apparent backdown by Chief Executive Carrie Lam? And third, you know, what should we expect into the future? What's your assessment regarding 
you know, what this may signify for the trajectory of Hong Kong's relationship with Beijing into the future? Well, look, the concerns of the protesters are obviously legitimate and amazing to see so many people walking uh, walking through the, the streets. I was personally surprised by the back down. I think many commentators uh, were. You were sort of reading a lot of things at the time that the, you know, the, the Chinese would uh, never back down from this. So I thought it was interesting and positive that Beijing did take note what was going on in Hong Kong and was willing to be at least tactically uh, responsive mm. to the uh, to the feelings on the street, rather. What do you make of it, Darren? Well, the first thing I would say is that it was concerning, I suppose, that you had a million-strong march over the weekend, um, which was not enough to sway the authorities. The chief executive specifically doubled down on her stance. I remember she compared herself to a mother um, and saying that, you know, the mother is not always going to respond, you know, to the wishes of her children. And then following that decision, the protests turn violent and, the you know, the police have to get involved and there's some question of what actually happened, but there's no doubt that there was some violence. And that is what ultimately leads to the reversal in position. And my worry is that, if Hong Kong citizens come to believe that the only way they can express themselves politically is through violence, then I think things are going to turn very ugly very quickly. The second point, you know, for me, Hong Kong is fascinating because for the last 40 years, it's essentially been this sort of liberal non-democracy, you know, first under British rule um, and then, to quote a, a Tyler Cowan column um, from Bloomberg, which I'll put in the show notes, you know, Hong Kong was bartered away like a piece of colonial merchandise. Life has been pretty good and improving for most people, but hovering over all of this is the absence of political institutions that reflect the popular will. You know, we've been focused very much on the contradictions and tensions of illiberal democracies, and Hong Kong is a case study of similar tensions playing out in reverse, in liberal yeah, non-democracies. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Um, yeah. And finally, uh, and this uh, I think will get to the, the question of trajectory, Alan, which I want to circle back to with you. You know, I think the status of Hong Kong is going to pose, you know, challenges for regional governments, including our own, to the future. This kind of thing could happen again. And I think leaders are going to be faced with very hard choices. You know, personally, I found the protest scenes very inspiring. And in the abstract, I would love to see Western governments do whatever they can to support such a, or to support the defence of, of, of democratic movements like this. But, you know, do we have any agency here? I, I'm worried that we don't have very much. And that leads me to, I guess, the, the focus on Australia and to ask you, Alan, you know, in the weeks prior to the protests, Australia was one of a number of governments to express concerns with the law. And there are, of course, you know, around 100,000 Australians who live in Hong Kong, many who conduct business on the mainland. In the aftermath of the protests, Foreign Minister Payne released a statement which in part read, the Australian government believes it is important that any changes to Hong Kong's extradition arrangements are pursued in keeping with regular processes of government and resolved in a way that fully respects Hong Kong's high degree of autonomy and upholds the rights and freedoms enshrined in Hong Kong's basic law under the one country, two systems framework. So, Alan, what should our strategy be in the coming months and years? And do we have any capacity to shape events? 
To shape events? Uh, no, I don't think we do. Uh, we have the capacity and the responsibility to say what we think, but it's only the government of China and the people of Hong Kong who can navigate this. Mm. And as I said before, I think we've had some positive signs out of this. I think the positive responses were easier uh, because the Chinese government knew that it was responding to uh, the mood in Hong Kong mm. rather than to criticism uh, from a you know pile on of, of other countries. Yes. So th this is one of the, the ways in which uh, I thought Maurice Payne's comment it was sort of there were people here who criticised it for being sort of, you know, inadequate or namby-pamby or something. Mm. Uh, I, th I think she got it pretty right. She made it clear what we thought, but not in a way that made it more difficult to negotiate through the temporary suspension anyway of the uh, bill. Mm. One of the more provocative and interesting pieces I read on Hong Kong was in Foreign Policy, the magazine, titled Britain Failed Hong Kong. And while she doesn't make the link explicitly, the author, Milia Howe, casts the decision to return Hong Kong to China in a way that reminded me of the decision to allow China to join the WTO. How the author writes, In those days, it was popular to think that ideas about individual liberty, democracy and human rights would spread from Hong Kong to other parts of China after the 1997 handover. There was a strand of thinking in the West that as China became more prosperous, a higher level of economic prosperity would translate into greater individual freedoms and democratic developments. Alan, was the handover in 1997 based on flawed assumptions about how China would evolve afterwards? I don't think it was based on flawed assumptions. So it, you know, the handover occurred as we were talking about before because um, it, you know, the leases had come to an end mm. and something had to uh, be negotiated. But it's true that it might have been accompanied by optimistic expectations. It was hoped over time that the two systems would evolve more in the Hong Kong direction yes. than the Beijing one, and that Beijing would use Hong Kong to demonstrate to Taiwan that the one country, two mm. systems could work. Mm. There's been less of that expectation recently. But look, I, I'm not prepared to give up on the sort of idea that higher levels of economic prosperity over time uh, do translate into a you know greater demand for uh, personal freedoms and greater choice. I don't see the arc of history having ended uh, here yet on uh, either what happens to Hong Kong or what happens in uh, the PRC itself. Well, that's very reassuring, Alan. I, I think I hold a sort of parallel view that you know, governments, any government, um, including one of the nature of the Chinese Communist Party, is going to be very responsive to economic concerns. And I imagine that the, the major um, impetus or sort of motivation for them accepting a back down uh, was the damage it would do to Hong Kong's reputation as a commercial hub um, and the pressure brought by you know, initially quietly, but then I think more publicly um, by the business community. And that if, you know, Hong Kong remains a central node of East Asian economy, that will remain a strong incentive not to interfere too 
significantly with you know its the operation of its politics but i guess we will we will see it's a smaller node in terms of the chinese economy by quite a long way than it was in 1997 but it remains uh, very important as a gateway for foreign investment uh, into in, into china and uh, that's uh, sort of uh, that you know, particular role it has remains uh, important in Beijing, I think. Mm. Okay, well, moving on but staying within our region, the Shangri-La Dialogue was held a few weeks ago, billed as Asia's premier defence summit by the organisers, which are the think tank, the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Alan, I wanted to ask you, this is the first time we've discussed the Shangri-La Dialogue on the podcast why is it worth paying attention to for those who are interested in Australian foreign policy? Well, it's a really interesting example of, um, I don't know what you'd call it, private diplomacy or something. Uh, as you said, it's organised by a think tank, the uh, International Institute for Strategic Studies, which has some quite strong uh, Australian connections. Um, Coral Bell, you know, the great Australian sort of strategic uh, thinker who uh, now has the Coral Bell School at the mm. ANU, named after her, mm. Robert O'Neill, both connected closely with it. Mm. And the IISS uh, saw a gap in the market. Um, you know, they sh they saw that there was no venue like Davos at the, at the economic end, and, uh, and they tried to fill it. They were supported in this by the Singapore government, which saw opportunities to sort of reinforce it, its own sort of status and standing in the region. And Singapore is obviously also a very, you know, highly efficient uh, place to, to hold such things. So it's every year it is both a conference, but even more importantly, it's an opportunity for defence ministers uh, from all around the region. And we had the Chinese defence minister there for the first time in um, in uh, several years mm. uh, uh, this year, so they can uh, they can meet in the corridors, and the Singapore government also takes the opportunity to bring together officials, including intelligence officials uh, from around the region, for meetings. So you've got you've got in the one place the ministers, you've got the academics and the think tankers, and you've got the officials. So if you want to take the temperature of the conventional wisdom in Southeast Asia. Once a year, the Shangri-La Dialogue is the place to do it. Interesting. Well, it will surprise no one that US-China competition was the major theme this year. And I think one of the most notable speeches came from the host, Singaporean Prime Minister Lee Hsien Lung. The first few sentences of his welcome address set a very clear tone, and I quote, Our world is at a turning point. Globalisation is under siege Tensions between the US and China are growing. Like everyone else, we in Singapore are anxious. We wonder what the future holds and how countries can collectively find a way forward to maintain peace and prosperity in the world. Alan, as we have discussed many times on this podcast, you share Lee's anxiety and I do too. I'm going to take two quotes from this speech and ask you to respond to each. The first is about China. Quote, China must now convince other countries through its actions that it does not take a transactional and mercantilist approach, but rather an enlightened and inclusive view of its long-term interests. Alan, your reaction? 
Uh, well, yes, absolutely. Um, though I think the transactionalism and mercantilism are uh, seen more dramatically in uh, in the Trump administration at the moment. In in China, I think we've we've seen interesting signs that it recognises that it needs to make adjustments. Uh, we saw that with the BRI and its willingness to compromise on that. We haven't seen a recurrence of the sort of hubristic. Uh, Xi Jinping claims at Davos, um, what was it, you know, mm. over over a year ago, that uh, that China was the defender of the international order. But China does need to uh, to do all those things. Uh, it needs to, you know, recognise that uh, reform of the WTO is uh, necessary. It needs to, you know, make adjustments to the way that it treated intellectual uh, property and so on mm. in the in the past. So. Yeah, he's right. The second quote is about the United States. This one's a little bit longer. Quote, The US, being the preeminent power, has the most difficult adjustment to make. But however difficult the task, it is well worth the US forging a new understanding that will integrate China's aspirations within the current system of rules and norms. New international rules need to be made in many areas, including trade and intellectual property, cybersecurity, and social media. China will expect a say in this process because it sees the present rules as having been created in the past without its participation. This is a reasonable expectation. The bottom line is that the US and China need to work together and with other countries too to bring the global system up to date and not to upend the system. To succeed in this, each must understand the other's point of view and reconcile each other's interests. Alan, your reaction? Well, that's, you know, very much the view of a country like Singapore or Australia, heavily dependent on the rules-based order and the multilateral system, saying to the two big powers um, you, you need to uh, you need to get on together. So you know what he had to say was uh, was completely uh, correct. I noticed that uh, Scott Morrison uh, also sort of cited this speech himself when talking about some of these uh, issues. Uh, and we can hope that <laughs> that um, uh, it's it's taken notice of. But the US is still struggling in Asia. It was a great pity, I think, that uh, Secretary of Defence uh, Shanahan, who, you know, spent a day or so there sort of trying to convince people of mm. the constancy of um, US uh, commitment, um, stepped down from the uh, job almost immediately after he got back to Washington. So that's sort of inconsistency and incoherence that we're seeing out of Washington and that those of us who you know, want the US to continue to be positively involved in the, uh, in the region uh, hope will be addressed. Is there a change in tone here? I mean, is this getting more explicit in, in terms of what the region is, is saying to the United States or do you think it's pretty, been a pretty consistent message in the last few years? Um, from from, from Lee. What, Lee, what yeah. Lee, what Lee said, I think it's getting more pointed mm. than it was. This coming from Singapore, I think, uh, in in particular, I I don't think you can talk about sort of Lee as the representative of the region. As I said, there are countries like Australia, 
which uh, share that uh, point of view, but the region is now very diverse in the way it's approaching the US-China relationship. And so it's becoming hard to sort of describe a single Mm. regional view, I think. Well, you, you've you've read Lee's speech, Darren. What did what did you make of it? I thought the prime minister offered a very insightful diagnosis of the sources of U.S. and China conflict, with which I fully agree, uh, and especially his comments on the domestic political dynamics facing both governments. I think he's he's very sensitive to the fact that both you know leaders and, and leaderships face you know domestic political concerns that drive their decision making and I think that's very important but I saw much less on the way of solutions other than broad statements of principle that make complete sense you know for example you know the idea that it's not reasonable or realistic to expect every country to adopt the same cultural values or political system that you have you know, and this is a comment he's clearly making to the United States um and I imagine, you know, that, that's true. It's not reasonable to expect every country to adopt, you know, do things the way that you do things. But I'm not sure that would comment is going to resonate um, or be seen as particularly helpful in either capital. Um, and I think it, it's quite a, an interesting uh, comment in the context of the recent, you know, Hong Kong protests in which we have a direct clash um, of political systems in play, you know, inside what is technically the sovereign territory of China. So I think, you know, if Lee's purpose was simply to signal we are anxious, you know, which is you know, the lead in his speech, he surely did that. Uh, but I think the world knows and the, and the region and, and the two major powers know that the region is anxious. And while I completely understand small and middle-sized countries, and I'm including Australia here, wanting to avoid taking risks yeah i think one of two things has to be true either we are relative lightweights and we have little agency in the trajectory of the regional order or or not or we have power either individually or collectively to shape the behavior of the major powers and if the latter is true you know i want to know what is our theory of influence i don't expect lee to talk about it in a speech but it's a question that I would love to see answered. You know, how can the smaller countries in the region, working together or by themselves, shape you know the trajectory of of, of this major power dynamic? Um, and that's something that I'm thinking about. Anyway, um, I will move on to our final uh, segment today, which is on Iran and the Middle East. Of course, tensions between Washington and Tehran escalated substantially in mid-June when two oil tankers were attacked in the Gulf of Oman. The White House very quickly blamed Iran and released some video footage and images as proof. Iran strenuously denied the accusation. At the time of the attacks, uh, Japan's Prime Minister Abe was in Tehran on a peacekeeping mission. Japan was, of course, a big buyer of Iranian oil until recent US sanctions imposed by the Trump administration, which had been imposed following Trump's withdrawal from the 2015 nuclear deal. And those sanctions had forced Japan to stop buying that oil. Now, of course, what was interesting is that one of the the ships that was attacked was a Japanese ship. So it was quite remarkable that it was attacked while Abe was in Tehran. As a result of uh, this attack, Washington announced a small increase in troop deployments to the region. And Iran, in response, threatened to cease compliance with a uranium stockpile 
um, agreement that limited how much uranium it could hold under the 2015 deal. Now, we are recording this on Friday the 21st of June, and there has been a lot of news just in the past few days. First, a US drone was shot down with Tehran and Washington disagreeing about whether it was actually inside Iranian territorial waters when it was shot. And then overnight, reporting indicates that Trump ordered airstrikes against Iranian targets and then subsequently changed his mind and backed down. So very fluid and confusing situation at this very moment. So, Alan, just two questions, um, and let's get straight to the Australian perspective on this. What are our diplomats and, I suppose, our spooks likely doing right now? How should the government be thinking about the possibility that war may break out or some kind of conflict may break out and that, that, that we could potentially be asked to participate in, even though we maintain our support for the nuclear deal? Well, I'm I'm sure what they're doing in uh, in our mission in Tehran and the other um, posts in the in the region is to be worried and to try and uh, and work out what local reactions are going to be to all of this. Mm. The worries will be about the oil price. It'll be uh, they'll be about the impact on the global economy, and they'll be about uh, regional war. We got into this because President Trump withdrew from a nuclear agreement which the US had signed, which the United Nations had endorsed, and with which Iran is was complying. Mm. Uh, so um, Australia, is, as you say, has been a supporter of the nuclear deal. We have interests in Iran, and we've noted this on the podcast before, that have been different from those of, uh, of some of the other Western allies. So I imagine both in the region and and here in Canberra, there's a lot of apprehension about what may come next. Do you have any thoughts about how you know, de-escalation can occur? It's It does seem like plans are being made and almost executed. Does planning drive the outcome here or is the mercurial Trump you know, just going to take, you know, create and then take his own off-ramp and not pay any price for it. I don't I don't think President Trump needs an off-ramp. I think he jumps into the void. <laughs> I think, he can, uh, uh, you know, I really don't. I, yeah. I, I, I think he'll just sort of, uh, you know, ma- make, a, make a decision. Um, I mean, talk about mercurial. Yeah. Here we have two members of President Bush's axis of evil mm. and North Korea tests nukes and uh, gets uh, rewarded and showered with love. Mm. Um, Iran uh, complies and uh, and is uh, pummeled. I, I, look, I don't I don't know what will happen, but but I think it I think it is interesting that there's already pressure from the Democrats in Congress. Um, demanding congressional involvement mm. in any uh, any decision, and we're certainly seeing more caution from the from the Europeans um, on on this issue. So both those things will will uh, will play into the days ahead. One wonders, I suppose, if Trump might take from the North Korea playbook and, having manufactured a crisis, then step in and 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 do some kind of deal. You know, he has stated that he would be willing to meet with the Iranian leadership, um, and then declare, okay, it's done, I fixed it, you know, I did what Obama couldn't do. Um, I yeah. Think, I yeah. think the difference here, though, is that there are many, uh, you know, uh, 
of the United States allies in the region who will be, you know, find that quite problematic, um, whether it's in Israel or, or, or Saudi Arabia or the, or the Gulf states. So I don't know if it, that's going to be as easy to do, but it's certainly, <laughs> certainly not with a, beyond the realms of possibility. Yeah, and look, there's also uh, there's also a, a high degree of difficulty on the Iranian side. I mean, I I don't know, uh, of course, um, you know what uh, what was going on, but it does look, you know, very suspiciously as though the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IGS, uh, the IRGC, mm. uh, it has a sort of mind of its own, or mm. at least uh, a mind disconnected to the views of the uh, of the president uh, rather than the, the supreme leader. So Iranian uh, policy and all this is also making it difficult. Mm. Okay, well, certainly one to keep an eye on in the, in the coming days and weeks. Our final segment for today, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what are you reading, listening or watching at the moment? Uh, I want to go back to the Shangri-La dialogue mm. and recommend a speech by uh, Florence Bali, the French defence minister. She arrived in Singapore accompanied by a carrier battle group, which is always a good, good <laughs> way to arrive, to arrive in, uh, in town. Uh, and it's an admirably direct and feisty speech, and I do, I do recommend it. Michael Fullylove from the Lowy Institute, who was, uh, who, who was there, described uh, Pali as the star of the uh, show. Uh, so it's a speech worth reading in its own right, but from an Australian perspective, I thought the interesting thing was the way she has singled out Australia and India uh, specifically a couple of times in the speech as a uh, as a partner. Now, I also note that President Macron and uh, Scott Morrison met at the D-Day commemorations mm -hmm. and that they'll do so again at the G20. So... The uh, Pali speech is an interesting reminder that when we talk about other partners in the Indo-Pacific, and we usually, you know, the people mean by that Japan and India and Indonesia and so on, that uh, France is also there. And I think that we will find there is more to be done uh, on uh, Australia-France uh, relations in this area. Great. Well, I am going to go well outside our box this week uh, and not recommend reading, listening or watching anything but doing. Um, and I humbly request our listeners not roll their eyes because, believe it or not, I have started meditating. I'm up to 15 minutes at a time and I, I do it most nights before I go to bed. And the main thing I have learned is how difficult it is to control your mind and control your thoughts. And that's been a very humbling but I think a profoundly interesting intellectual experience as well and the main impact for me other than some pride that I've been able to go from five minutes to 15 minutes at a time um, is that it help, helps me fall asleep more easily um, it, it doesn't feel relaxing um, yet at least when you're doing it but I think the consequence is that it does calm your mind uh, and you know in this world of 24-hour news in particular sort of foreign policy world that we live in that's uh, not an insignificant thing um, so I'd read a little bit about it on popular news websites, including you know, the New York Times, and I was persuaded to give it a try. Um, and I really fully expect it's going to be part of my life from now on. So, Alan, you know, at least for this week, I humbly propose that we rename this last segment Reading, Listening, Watching or Doing. <laughs> Do I have your support? 
Oh, peace, Darren. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AWI intern Charlie Henshaw for his help with audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Talk to you again soon.